0: Hi, this is Jack Kramer, Development Associate at the Sgt. Shriver National Center on Poverty Law, a national leader in advancing justice and opportunity. I want to welcome you to The Witness, a monthly podcast where we bring you first-hand stories from attorneys and advocates who are on the front lines of fighting for justice for people living in poverty. The Witness is a project of the Shriver Center's Clearinghouse Community. Today's episode is the fifth in an ongoing mini-series about the Tennessee Alliance for Legal Services. Founded in 1977, TALS is a statewide coordinator for civil legal aid programs in Tennessee. During its 40th anniversary celebration at the Equal Justice University event, we got to talk with some of the lawyers and advocates who came together from across the state. We learned about their lives, their careers, and their hopes for the future of legal aid in Tennessee. In our previous episodes, we talked with legal aid attorneys, and today we will hear from two Tennessee Supreme Court justices as they tell us about the court's impact on the Access to Justice initiative in Tennessee. Margaret L. Bem is a managing partner at Dodson, Parker, Bem, and Caparella, PC. In 2009, she was appointed by the Tennessee Supreme Court for a three-year term as chair of the newly created Access to Justice Commission to help address the growing civil legal needs crisis in Tennessee. In a conversation with former Tennessee Supreme Court Justice Janice M. Holder, who served from 1996 to 2014 and became the first woman to serve as Chief Justice of the Court in 2008, they'll talk about the Court's unprecedented role in the creation of the Access to Justice Commission.
1: Justice Holder, what a opportunity for us to look back and talk about access to justice in Tennessee and I think a great way to start is like how did the court get so engaged in this access to justice initiative
2: well it's really interesting and I think the way we got engaged is what made our access to justice initiative so very strong in Tennessee we were having a strategic planning session and we started out I think it was in 07 our first one, and we followed up after that. But we sat around and tried to decide what our goals should be, what our number one, two, three priorities Mm -hmm. should be in Tennessee, and we decided unanimously that it should be increased access to justice. And that is what we carried forward. It was unanimous. We all, after a day or two of talking, agreed that that's the focus we wanted and that we wanted to make sure that people knew it wasn't just for one year or two years, that it was going to be for that year and for years going forward.
1: You know, you have said a couple of times that it was unanimous, and I think what we discovered when we went to Access to Justice conferences that what they asked was, suggested that you at least find one justice on your court who can be your advocate to help bring about change. And we turned and looked at each other, and we went, the whole court is behind this. It was amazing. I mean, talk about what that means when you say unanimously the court is behind it, and what you also saw going on in the country at that same time with other Supreme Courts.
2: Well, I think it's typical that there's a champion on the court, on any court, for a particular project. But when you say it's unanimous and everybody is behind it, what it means is is what happened. We started with the project and started doing things and creating the rule that provided for specific things that we wanted our Access Justi- to Justice Commission to do long before we ever appointed the Access to Justice Commission. So by having a unanimous buy-in, it allowed us to start working immediately to attempt to get the ball rolling. So when we created the Access to Justice Commission and named you all, we sort of dropped you into the middle of it (laughs) and said, here it is, we've started it, you pick it up and run with it.
1: I remember before, you appointed the Access to Justice Commission, though, that you went around the state. And we did. the five of you had hearings everywhere about, and invited people to come in and talk about, you know, the civil legal needs crisis. And what, what did you find out in those hearings that maybe you didn't even know? At
2: we attempted to video them. And I think we still may have those videos. But I think we were interested in finding out what people Thought and I thought we got some good information. But I think really what we were interested in is letting people know we were interested and that we Mm -hmm. were willing to dedicate our time and our effort to coming into the communities and to asking people what they thought.
1: And the visual of all five of you there, not just one or two, but all of you there. I think was extremely impactful and of course you knew that as a court but that was, you were sending a message. You were gathering information but also sending a message.
2: And I think it's so true that sometimes courts get ideas and it can be for a commission to do this or that and we create a commission and the commission puts a lot of time and effort into it they give us a report and the report, we pay attention to it and we may try to implement portions of it but it may just sit there for a year and we'll do something and sit there for another year and we'll do something else or the commission will continue. This had an energy of its own. Yes, it
1: did. And I think another thing that the court did that helped the commission was, and I don't think there was any other state that had this at the time, the court asked to have someone an access to justice coordinator Hired with the administrative yes. office of the courts, so you actually had a staff person. So not just a commission functioning without staff. Talk about that, because that was already in place at the time that the we dropped to you justice. into the middle right. of it. <laughs> but how helpful um, that was.
2: We decided we were going to commit resources to it, and I think we were the only state that had an access to justice coordinator whose full-time job was to work with the commission, work with the court, and to create the things that needed to be created.
1: Well I know how helpful that was. The other thing that I think when you mention about having a commission and getting a report and actually doing something with it, I recall that there had been a lot of work done by a commission regarding self-represented people, pro se folks. There was an extensive report And one of your directives in Rule (coughs) 50 was that we got to do something with this report. Exactly. So um, there were a lot of things happening when you created the Access to Justice Commission, but you were looking for a commission, I think, that you gather all these things that are out there, and then you figure out how to make an impact. That was the directive.
2: And I think the way we created the commission was also very interesting. Of course, you were our first choice and only choice for chair. <laughs> and we I started that's with the that. way you pitched it. <laughs> <I> don't know <laughs> that if that was true. It's, or true, not. <laughs> it's true. And what we uh, did was instead of creating a large commission that had what I would call the usual suspects, we decided to think outside the box and bring people into the commission who would not necessarily be involved in access to justice initiatives but for being on the commission. But we thought that uh, the faith-based organizations in Tennessee needed to be represented. We thought business needed to be represented. We, We didn't think we just needed to have people from our legal services organizations. And the way we structured it was to do things that really created an umbrella of people who are used to doing things, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: not necessarily in the access to justice world, but were used to doing things, used to finding resources, used to making those resources work in particular directions, and then we had a, a level underneath that that really allowed anybody who wanted to be part of the access to justice initiative to join a committee.
1: Well, it was a great commission. There were 10 of us. We looked like the state of Tennessee. Uh, not all of us were lawyers. And I think that what I liked about it, what you, how you set it up was, was that you told us just that at the first meeting. You told us you were selected because you were doers. You make things happen. And at the same time, you have demonstrated an interest in this area in one way or the other through your career. And uh, so when you drafted this Rule 50, though, you put everything in there. I mean, it was a large task. It was almost anything you could think of was included in Rule 50. And I remember I was uh, appointed for a three-year term and the court specifically said, directed the Access to Justice Commission within one year to do a strategic plan, (laughs) and then every two years thereafter to do one, and to report how you were doing on your plan. So it was a court order, essentially, Mm -hmm. to a commission mostly made up of lawyers, and I think that the thing that I thought was such a good idea about the court's thinking was, There's so many different uh, constituencies for the delivery of access to justice types of services. And if you had selected someone from East Tennessee on legal aid or from some non-legal aid, pro bono type activity, it would have looked like, as you explained to us, that you were giving preference to one legal aid organization over another as far as at that point in time what that spot was. And our charge was was to get everybody involved and figure out how to do that, but to be people who did not have those affiliations so that we could think of different solutions.
2: And I really think that there was no other model like that in the US. No, I don't think so And either. I don't think there is now but I thought it was a very interesting model and when I went to national conferences and explained it, I think people's eyes sort of glazed over because they couldn't imagine why I would put a minister on an Access to Justice Commission. I thought it was perfectly logical because people who are in the faith-based communities are seeing problems that have not just a spiritual component but also a legal component.
1: Yeah, I think that the thing that um, opened my eyes and the, one of the best times I had with you was I was appointed in April and when you appointed me, you told me you have to go to the seminar next month, and, but I'm going to, so <laughs> let's go down and see what's happening. And we went to all the sessions and then we went off later and we just you know decided, well, so much of what they're talking about is already happening in our state. And we just decided we were just going to take off and uh, really have each other's back and figure out, make it up as we go along, but make something happen. And it was a very important time for me that we had that time together where we could make sure we were on the, you know, as you say, the same page, that we would develop lines of communication. And it was great.
2: It was very special, Margaret. It
1: really was a great time, and the people you pointed were fantastic. Within the first year, just to give an example of what the court's commitment, in the first year the court, even before we had the strategic plan, enacted changes in nine to ten rules which had to do with pro bono reporting, emeritus attorneys. I mean, it was all over the place in which the court was limited scope, representation, just all of these rules uh, quickly, I mean, out for public comment, but making such a shift. uh, Forms, uncontested divorce forms, figuring out a rule to approve forms, General Sessions forms. I mean, it it was almost explosive and We had like seven or eight advisory committees because the rule asked us to deal with so many things. (laughs) And those people came back with recommendations and that was part of the plan. And, um, you know, I think one of the best things that came out of that commission was not only the website that you all approved, a website that you just clicked on a county and any county in our state and all the services would be right there where you could get pro bono help, all of the self-represented forms that you have approved, uh, and then the TALS uh, system, of online system of answering questions that really came about within the first 12 months to 18 months that you all approved And, and
2: what I think was interesting was that because we had so much going on and so many people were, were included, you sort of forgot whose project it was.
1: Oh yeah, well it was. I mean, yeah, there was, was
2: a Taos obviously. project, and there was our project, and there was this project, and there was that project, but it was all our project, all of us, and no one was worried about ownership Absolutely. or Absolutely who not. got credit for it.
1: On the other hand, what happened was because so many people were involved in these advisory committees—I mean, it was over a hundred—there was so much excitement because the court was so active in the legal aid community, you know, or that type of community. There was a lot of energy because the court was so active. The court was so responsive. The court showed up, whether it was a conference, whether it was whatever it was. If you asked the court to show up, we had a pro bono summit uh, early in January 2011. Every single one of you all were there, and every single one of you gave a separate address. It wasn't like you sat there on a stage and one person talked. It was amazing. And so law schools developed pro bono programs. I mean, it just exploded because, I think, of the court and its vision on how to structure this.
0: We revisit the conversation with Justice Clark, member of the Tennessee Supreme Court, and Ann Louise Worthlin the Access to Justice Coordinator at the Administrative Office of the Courts. As Justice Clark talks about how the Access to Justice Commission expanded its reach and what she wants to work on going forward. I'd like to know from you, since you were the you came in, you were the Chief Justice very soon after the Access to Justice initiative um, came about, and then you became our liaison. You've been our liaison for quite a long time. so in your experience what's been the most profound moment since you've been involved in with access to justice?
3: Almost every time I see uh, an individual matched up with a lawyer who can then get some help and from and some relief from a problem um, I think that's very profound and it always touches me but probably as you know the, The activity that I've been the most invested in is the Faith and Justice Alliance. Uh, It started as something after two or three years when we were being very successful in many traditional ways of doing clinics and, and matching lawyers with individuals. We started to say to each other, who are we missing, where can we find them? And it crossed our minds that many people who are in trouble go to their houses of worship for help. They don't think of their problems as legal problems. They may just know they lost a job, uh, they lost their insurance, they've got a sick family member, they can't pay their rent, and so the landlord's gonna come after them. Um, And they go to people that they trust. And the light bulb came on and, and we said, if we can meet those people there, if we can get, Uh, worship folks involved in this we know they're already serving their congregants and if we can just get them to understand there's a legal component and if you add a lawyer to the discussion you can really help people's lives and and that's been true and now we have uh, members of all Christian denominations and a number of other religious religions knocking on our door Mm -hmm. and saying, we like this model, we know we have issues within our community, we'd like to join with you. Uh, That just makes me smile every time I think about it.
0: Is there something that you wish we could address that we're not? Well,
3: our most basic activity uh, is still the most important. And so I keep looking at the numbers. Mm-hmm. As you know, everywhere I go, I, you, whoever speaks says we we now ha- have over one million Tennesseans mm-hmm. every day who have a civil legal problem and the inability to hire a lawyer. And sometimes we may think it's 1.2 million, 1.3 <laughs> million, but it's a lot of people and we have 80 or fewer legal aid attorneys mm-hmm. uh, to handle those one million cases. Mm-hmm. And every time I hear that number or say that number, I go, oh my gosh, no matter what we did last year, we've got a long way to go. Mm-hmm. And we still do. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm still convinced that if we just keep working on it, all 22,000 licensed lawyers in Tennessee mm-hmm. will see the light and get on board. And and we see that every year more people are mm-hmm. interested and they are willing to provide their time or their financial resources um, or or resources of their firms to this. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, there's no doubt we we get satisfaction back we know that we are making progress but the is still staggering mm-hmm. uh, over a million people 80 lawyers and un- unless we get involved and so I just think every day we have to get up and say how can we find more legal help for more people uh, and as you know there is a great need to w- w- we figured it out pretty well in the urban areas mm-hmm. it's pushing the help out to the rural areas where there are not many lawyers in some places, Mm -hmm. there are not many other agencies or resources, Um, but access to justice for all people means all people, Mm -hmm. not just those in Davidson County or Shelby
0: County. Coming up next on The Witness. So as I was saying, um, I've often heard Gordon Bonneman talk about uh, referring to the early days and the founding of Legal Aid in Tennessee as the Legal Services Movement, mm-hmm. um, which is language we tend not to speak in anymore. Um, could you talk about what you know, what it was like to be a part of that movement? Did you think of it of a movement at the time? And how has it changed? Why do we not talk in those terms anymore? Once again, this has been Jack Kramer from the Sergeant Shriver National Center on Poverty Law. This episode was recorded by Amanda Moore, director of the Clearinghouse Community at the Shriver Center, and produced by Jesse Dixon, the training and engagement vista at the Shriver Center. We'd like to extend a special thanks to TALS for sharing their stories and allowing us to record at the Equal Justice University. We hope you'll continue joining us for The Witness. We'd also like to invite you to join us for the Advocacy Exchange, our monthly conversations with advocates advancing change. Those are hosted live through YouTube each month. You can find both the Advocacy Exchange and The Witness on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. You can learn more about the podcast and the Clearinghouse community by going to povertylaw.org clearinghouse. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.